And uh, it's still the Lord's Day, and in particular, it's Palm Sunday. And because this is the Word of God, and you are the people of God, if you are able, and I do understand that now more than ever, would you please stand? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 20. Sometimes you laugh to keep from crying, don't you? Deuteronomy 20. Moses writes as he is carried along by God's Spirit. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel. Today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house. Lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. Verse 10, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little children, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, and the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? 
Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Church family, the grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Our beloved retired senior pastor who still is a member of this church, what a privilege that is, Pastor Phil Jones, cautioned throughout his ministry here at FBP something like this. He would say, the devil doesn't mind which side of a horse you fall off, right? But as long as you, what? Fall off. The devil doesn't mind if you fall off to the left or to the right, but what matters For the devil, that is, is indeed that you fall off. Well, when we approach a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 20, there are two possible errors I want to warn you against as we begin. You might even consider these two sides of the horse. On the one hand, the error consists of something like this. When Christians avoid passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20 altogether, That is to say, Christians might assign a passage like this to simply the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant or the Mosaic Law, and after all, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And so passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20 are rarely preached on, and after reading that, you can understand why this is indeed the case. This this is the tendency to dismiss the Old Testament perhaps altogether as obsolete for the Christian. And so we spend the majority of our time unpacking anything from Matthew on. But anything prior to Matthew, we avoid. Perhaps because it's foreign, perhaps because there's a cultural gap, perhaps because there's there's a temporal gap, but oftentimes it's more than that because we misunderstand the, the relevance of Old Testament Scripture for the life of the Christian. That's one error. One side of the horse. The other side of the horse, the other error, is the tendency to uproot a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 20 and transplant it into our contemporary context. So this isn't ignoring Deuteronomy chapter 20 or other Old Testament passages. This isn't acting as if the Old Testament is obsolete. Rather, it's reading the Old Testament as if it were written with immediate relevance for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's taking the instructions of a particular text in the Old Covenant, uprooting it from its historical context, and then simply transplanting it into our contemporary climate and context today. The result is usually something like empowering or legitimizing one nation over and against other nations. For example, many Christians fall prey to this when we interpret texts concerning the nation of Israel as immediately applicable to the nation of America. This is oftentimes the case. And so the tendency might be to take Deuteronomy chapter 20 and apply it to a war today taking place between America and another nation. That would be an error. It'd be one side of the horse. Well, we are going to try to avoid both of these errors in interpreting and applying God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 20 this morning. 
a word that was originally written to a particular people at a particular time in canonical history, that is in the history of Scripture itself. And we're going to do this keeping in mind that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for God's people today in the ways of producing doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. So on the one hand, we don't want to lose sight of the historical context of Deuteronomy chapter 20, and perhaps even more precisely, the biblical context where this actually occurs throughout the storyline of Scripture. We want to remain, as it were, tethered to that context, and yet we don't want to limit ourselves to that context. We also want to see this as God's abiding word for God's people today if read and interpreted properly through the coming of Jesus Christ. So we're going to do all of that or try to do all of that in the next few moments. You might even say this is in some ways a lesson on hermeneutics, how to interpret and read portions and even apply portions of Scripture as followers of Jesus Christ. Well, you may have already picked up on what this text is all about. It's not terribly difficult, is it? This is a warfare manual. What you won't hear in the next couple of minutes is go and do likewise. It's more complex than that, isn't it? And this is a warfare manual that God gives to Israel to instruct them in how to wage war with the inhabitants of Canaan, that is, the people who were living in the promised land at this time. Remember, Israel is standing on the plains of Moab, and they're about to enter the land of Canaan, the promised land, and they're about to go to war. These wars, of course, are recorded, many of them in the book of Joshua. And so God is instructing his people in how to go to war. There's a particular way they are to go to war against the inhabitants of Canaan. But it's beyond this because they're going to go to war at times with other nations. And what might those particular wars look like? What should they look like? This is a manual for warfare given by God to his people, Israel. And we're going to unpack this as a manual filtered through the lens of Christ, read through the lens of Christ and applied to us this morning by, if you're taking notes, identifying three instructions that God gives throughout Deuteronomy chapter 20. So if you're taking notes, three instructions that surface out of the text that God gives concerning warfare to Israel first, and then of course I'm going to argue that God continues to give to his people today through the coming of Jesus Christ, and we'll see how all of this works together. Well, let's begin by looking first at verse 1, where we can identify the first instruction God gives to his people Israel and then by extension to us. Look with me, if you would, at the first verse of Deuteronomy chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The first instruction God gives to Israel in warfare is something like this. Place your confidence in the presence and power of God. That's the first bit of instruction. In fact, I would, I would argue, actually, this is really the underlying instruction of the entire chapter. Place your confidence in the presence and power of God. Recall, as I mentioned a moment ago, that Israel is going to be going to war quite soon. And many of the nations that Israel is going to face will be nations that are larger and mightier than they are. 
We saw this back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're walking through the book of Deuteronomy, and we saw it back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God did not choose Israel because they were mightier than other nations or stronger than other nations or larger than other nations. In fact, God tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that he chose them because he loved them. That is to say, I chose you because I chose you. There's nothing intrinsic in you, Israel. My choice actually grows out of who I am, not who you are. Israel's strength as a result will be inadequate when they go to war. You understand? They're going to fight against these nations that should decimate them. And so what is Israel to do in these moments? How are they going to take possession of the land God had given them? Well, they're only going to do it in the strength that God supplies. They're going to do it because God is with them. Moreover, God is for them. And it's not incidental It's not incidental that the first person to stand before the people of Israel, picture the scene, as they're about to go into battle, the very first person that is to stand before the people of Israel is a priest, the spiritual leader, not a commander, not an officer, but a priest. A priest is to stand up in the congregation as they are readying themselves for battle. Notice verse 2. When you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people. This reminds us that Israel's wars were to be, they weren't always this, they were disobedient as scripture continues to show us, if we were to continue reading. But Israel's wars were to be first and foremost battles belonging to the Lord. Israel was an instrument in the hands of the Lord. That's important to understand. In fact, one particular commentator, he's actually, he was a Southern Baptist, Old Testament exegete who's with the Lord now, John Selhammer, John Selhammer talks a bit about this in his commentary on the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. He says that Israel's wars were not for the purpose of foreign aggression or personal gain. Keep that in your mind as we walk through this. Israel's wars were for the purpose of God himself dispensing judgment. And so God was utilizing Israel time and time again. In fact, there were times, even we've already seen back in chapter 2 of Deuteronomy chapter, rather Deuteronomy chapter 2, God, God told Israel, look, when you pass by Moab or when you pass by Ammon, these other nations, you are not to take their land. Why? Because God says, I've given them their land. Israel didn't have a kind of carte blanche approach to war. Go to war with whomever you desire and seize whatever land you choose. No, that's not God's calling on the people of Israel. You are to go to war only when it's sanctioned by me. You are to seek me. And if I do not tell you to go to war, you don't go to war. All of that really does undergird passages like Deuteronomy chapter 20. In fact, when Israel does go to war and they're not supposed to go to war, what happens throughout Scripture? They find themselves in quite a bind. And so please understand, all of these wars, it is assumed concerning all of these wars that these wars belong to the Lord. And this is one of the reasons why it was a priest, a spiritual advisor, who stood before the people in preparation for battle first. 
And the priest was to remind Israel that success in the battle depended on God's presence and power. Notice verses three and four. And the priest shall say to them, hear, O Israel. You've heard that before, haven't you? Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Same exhortation here. Hear, O Israel. Today, the priest is to say, you are drawing near to the battle against your enemies. Let not, not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Same message really that we found in verse one. Now the priest is to speak this message again and again and again to God's people. Now, you and I are not late 15th, early 14th, century B.C. Israelites. We're not standing on the plains of Moab. We're right here in Powell, Tennessee in the 21st century. 2022 last I checked. It's been quite some time since God's people were in this particular position. Additionally, I would add to this, Christ makes it clear by means of his incarnation, by means of his death, by means of his resurrection, by means of his teaching, Christ makes it abundantly clear that his disciples are no longer to wage physical war against national enemies. You may recall what Jesus does in the Garden of Gethsemane when one of his disciples, zealous Peter, so confident, wasn't he? Peter was eager to fight for his Lord. And when they came to arrest Jesus, what did Peter do? Peter pulled out a sword. And he swings the sword at a man named Malchus. It's one of the servants who's come to arrest Jesus. And the texts actually tell us that he lops off Malchus's ear. I think it's John's gospel that names the servant Malchus. If I recall, not all the gospels name the servant and he lops off Malchus's ear. Now, what is he aiming for? He's aiming for the head. No one in war aims for the ear. No one, right? No one pulls out a sword, right? No one in human history intentionally pulls out a sword and aims for the ear. No, he's aiming for the head. He misses. And Jesus actually heals the servant reattaches, as it were, something this year. Because, of course, the God who formed man from the dust is able to form again in the Garden of Gethsemane. But that's a rabbit. And that's a fun rabbit. <laughs> and Jesus turns to Peter and says... Put away your sword. In fact, one gospel says, enough of this. The one who takes up the sword will perish by the sword. You miss it, Peter. My disciples are not going to wage physical war against physical enemies. My people are not fundamentally now a nation, geopolitical nation although that language of nation gets used. 
not a geopolitical nation that is to go to war against other national threats. Now, my people are to engage in spiritual warfare. And we see this in the Gospels. We see this throughout the New Testament. Let me give you a couple examples of this because this really does help us apply Deuteronomy chapter 20. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes these words, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is to say, we wrestle against, we war against these spiritual beings. There's more going on than what meets the eye. In fact, Paul will caution us elsewhere in 2 Corinthians not to just focus on things we can see. You may look at someone and think that's your enemy. Paul's saying you've missed it. There's more going on behind the scenes than we can see with our physical eyes. Paul will also say in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3, 4, and 5, and here he's using the language of waging war. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Let me say that again. Although we exist in the flesh, God is concerned about the flesh. Paul believes in that. Christ has redeemed the flesh, as it were, at least the, the bodies, by means of resurrection. But we are not waging war according to the flesh. This is not a fleshly or physical war. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And then Paul goes on to say, fascinating text, we destroy arguments. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What is the Apostle Paul saying? Our war is an intellectual battle. Our war is a spiritual battle. Our war is against heresy. Our war is against teaching that leads others astray and jeopardizes their souls eternally. That's our war. And so for the Apostle Paul, as of course he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christian is indeed at war, but this war is a spiritual war. It's an intellectual war. It is we won't turn there. I may mention it just in just a bit. Colossians chapter 3, it's a moral or ethical war. It's a war nonetheless. In fact, you could even argue that it's, it's more real than what met the eye in Deuteronomy chapter 20 as Israel's entering the land of Canaan. That war pointed to a more cosmic and ultimate war, the war in which we engage today as followers of Christ. So, okay, with this realization... This is a lens for us to read these texts concerning warfare. With this realization, now we look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, a warfare manual, and now we see it as a manual for the church to engage in spiritual war. You see? And this is how we read the Old Testament Christianly. Not removing it from its context, but building on that context and seeing it, of course, coming to fruition in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean for us? We're still in this first instruction. The front porch is growing by the moment. What does this text actually mean for us? This first instruction, that is, place your confidence in the presence and power of God. Well, this means for us as Christians that when we are battling the temptations of sin and Satan, 
our confidence must rest in the sufficiency of Christ's presence and power for us. So this means that when I'm waging war against a sinful habit that has plagued my life for a decade now, let's say, and maybe it's something that others know about, maybe it's something that I've hidden, but I'm waging war against this thing in time and time and time again, I'm losing this battle. It means that I lean more and more into not my own strength, Not my own wherewithal, but the power and presence promised to me in Christ Jesus and through the abiding spirit. I've oftentimes heard, in just a moment, I think this thing is going to beep. When it does, just ignore it. I may pull it back out and it may beep a few more times if I have to dial it back up. We'll see. (laughs) That's an unnecessary rabbit, but you know, it's what's going through my mind and you know how this works. There is a filter in here. There really is. And a lot of thoughts happen back here. And as they make their way this direction, you know, some of them get trapped. Most of them don't. (laughs) Then they escape. And I wish there was, I wish there were one more filter right out this way, right here. But there's not. I've heard Christians, back to what I was saying, I've heard Christians from time to time, and I perhaps have even fallen prey to this myself, talk about their sin as if it's It's more powerful than the spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead who now lives in Christians. We talk about our sin in such a way at times. I just just can't stop doing this. I'm just plagued by this. Now, on the one hand, there's some truth to this, right? On the one hand, we will not this side of resurrection glory taste of the comprehensive and exhaustive product of sanctification. Sanctification continues throughout this life. We are continuing to grow in Christ's likeness. But on the other hand, we are continuing to grow in Christ's likeness. And we're doing this by means of the God who indwells us. You understand? We have the power and presence of God in ways that Israel could only dream of. And so oftentimes I think when I hear a Christian at least sensing, and it's understandable to sense this, sensing their own defeat in response to and as a result of going to war against their sin, when I, when I hear Christians struggling with this, I do oftentimes think you aren't underestimating your own power. You're underestimating the power of God. And I need to hear this as much as any of you do. So when battling these temptations to sin, place your confidence in the presence and power of God given to you through Christ. And now, of course, the power and presence of God that has come to live within you by means of the Holy Spirit. Additionally, I would say, as we think about this first instruction as Christians, when you are struggling with other truth claims, now we're going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 here where the Apostle Paul talks about going to war against arguments, lofty arguments and opinions that are elevated against Christ and we're taking these things captive. When you struggle against other truth claims that are contrary to Christianity, you can trust in the presence and power of Christ. I remember when I first started college, perhaps I've shared this story in part with some of you, maybe all of you. 
When I first started college, and it wasn't at the Masters out in California, I actually decided to take a few classes at a community college in Central Texas before I went out. And one of the classes that was offered was a Bible class at a community college. I was a young Christian. I thought, well, this will be great. Study the Bible. And I showed up. And again, I was a, I was a brand new Christian, still an infant in so many ways. And, and the professor stood up, and I never, I just won't forget the way it felt in the classroom. I'm eager to study God's word. I've learned to trust God. I've learned to trust his word. I've come to know Jesus in the last year or so. And, and the professor began to teach. And what he began to teach actually was a view that was contrary to scripture. What he began to teach is that the Old Testament was simply a historical book and, and uh, simply contained, you know, nationalistic propaganda. And he went on to say something along the lines of he considered himself a Christian. I still to this day don't know how he considered himself a Christian. But I remember sitting in that class and my faith was assaulted daily. I remember others being in the class and we had great conversation. And I was, to my knowledge, the only person in the class who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the only student. The other students who took the class were those students who were interested maybe in, in uh, understanding more about the Bible simply as a historical book, or there were some students in the class who took the class because they wanted to deconstruct Christianity to use more of a contemporary term. And we would get into these discussions, some would perhaps say debates, and I didn't know what to say so oftentimes. I still don't. But I especially didn't then. And I would leave class, and I would go home, and I would also go to my pastor, but I would also go back to the Word of God, and I would get on my knees, and I would say things like this, God, I have come to know you. I remember when I came to know you. I remember I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was spending time reading scripture and one minute I was reading scripture just with curiosity. The next minute I was reading it as the word of God and I didn't know what in the world had changed. I had come to trust this God who had rescued me through Jesus Christ. And I would cry out to him throughout that class. Lord, I trust you. Your presence is enough. Your power is enough. Your truth is enough. Give me wisdom to to grow. And I did. Now, this isn't the story everybody experiences. Some people go through a class like that and they don't come out with their faith. I came out with my faith stronger than it was when I went into the class. But why? Because of the power and presence of God. That's why. Are there answers to some of these things? Yes. And we ought to be equipping our young people for these discussions all kinds of conversations today going on about these high schoolers going off to college and then losing their faith. And I don't know, I've heard so many statistics and I don't know which statistics to believe, but it happens. And we ought to have honest conversations with our young people, preparing them with the truth claims so that they can interact in a way that's winsome and gracious and faithful with other truth claims, all the while knowing, don't miss this, all the while knowing it is simply Simply, that is, the victory is simply had on account of the presence and power of God in Christ. That's it. That's the only way anyone's ever convinced because of the presence and power of God in Christ. I mentioned this morning in the Membership Matters class, I'll mention it again now, C.S. Lewis, who wrote a little essay, originally it was, a, it was an oral presentation, a little essay 
called The Weight of Glory. Have you read The Weight of Glory? Any of you? Oh, okay, a few of you. Goodness. Well, go read The Weight of Glory, okay? It's short, and you can get it for free online. A PDF probably you could access online. The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. Uh, He once wrote words like this. I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen. Not because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Isn't that great? Now, what does that presume? That presumes you already believe, doesn't it? And that's okay. But then once you really authentically sink your teeth into this thing, (laughs) once Christ really does take hold of you, then you can't unsee him. At least that's been my experience. Some perhaps would argue differently. It's not been my experience. In fact, I would suggest to you, for me personally, every year I see him more and more. This is simply on account of the presence and power of God in Christ. So our victories over sin, our victories over other ideas in opposition to the gospel are not the result of personal wherewithal or intellectual acumen. There are very smart Christians and there are other Christians perhaps whose IQ isn't as high. It's not the result of a high IQ test. No, rather we experience victory over these things because Christ has decisively defeated our enemies through his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. That's where our confidence is as Christians. Now, what that means for you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, and I would be remiss if I didn't say this, what that means is we believe as a church with all of our heart that there is an eternal victory that is offered you through Christ and so we would implore you, we would, we would beg of you, we would plead with you that if you've not embraced Jesus Christ in faith, you would do that this morning. You would come to see Jesus Christ as C.S. Lewis described the rising of the sun. You wouldn't necessarily come to believe in Jesus because you saw Jesus, but, but because perhaps you begin to see everything else through him. And if that's where you are, if you've this morning even come to realize your own sin and you desire to turn in faith to Jesus Christ, that can begin with a prayer, by the way. It can begin with something as simple as it did with me. God, I think you're real, and I think you've saved me. Have me. Something like that. Amen. I don't know what I prayed. It was something simple like that. But if that's where you are, would you stay afterward for a few moments as you leave this room and take a left? And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called Crossroads. You'll see the title just above the room. Go in there and have a conversation with the pastor who's going to be in that room about what it means to trust in and treasure Jesus Christ, who is God's presence and power for us. Talk to him about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and let us come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we serve Jesus Christ together. Okay. Well, that's the front porch. Two more instructions. The second one will be brief. The second instruction that God gives to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20 is count the cost. Count the cost. That's the second instruction God gives to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 20. After the priest offered his encouragement, various other leaders stepped forward 
began offering the soldiers exemptions, actually. Opportunities to turn around and go home. So look with me at verse five. And this is where we begin to see the second instruction of counting the cost. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back. Lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. How about that? They're getting ready for war. And hey, by the way, any of you built a new house lately? Oh, okay, you have? Do you want to go back? Because you may die in a moment. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll... I think I'll go back. Verse 6. And if you planted a vineyard, how about that? Anyone planted a vineyard and you've not been able to eat the produce yet? Enjoy the fruit of your hands? Go back. Because you may die. And that vineyard will be used by somebody else. Is that what you want? How how is this for a pep talk? I mean, think about this. What an altar call. Verse 7, the one who has betrothed a wife. So, you know, the contemporary analogy for us is engagement. It's not the same thing, but it's close enough for our purposes. Are you engaged to a wife? You've not married her yet? You want to go back? Because you may die in a moment. Someone else is going to marry her. Yeah, I think I may go back. And then finally, verse 8, Moses offers an exemption And that is God offering the exemption through the writing of Moses to the officers. Now the officers are standing before God's people. And the exemption is to the one who is fearful and faint-hearted. After all, one's fear could dishearten the others. Look, are you afraid? Then go back. And now I'm wondering, who is left? Who in the world is still standing there at this point? I mean, you got to put yourself in the position of these officers as you're standing there and you're one of the officers and you offer the call, as it were. I mean, I'm thinking maybe I'd offer the call and then I'd head out. Did you plant a vineyard? I did. You betrothed the wife? I did. Are you afraid? I am. Now, I think there are a lot of things going on here. On the one hand, it seems that these exemptions are gracious immunities granted to God's people, demonstrating, don't miss this, demonstrating what we've already said, the victory rests not in the number of soldiers, but in the presence and strength of God. So God can save by many or by few. Right? That's part of it. But I think it's more than that. It seems to me that this section functions in a similar way to the passages in the New Testament that warn us to count the cost of following Jesus Christ. Have you ever considered the altar calls Jesus offers? John chapter 6, he's got a megachurch. 
He's got a mega church in John chapter six. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And they all leave. And Jesus now has a small group. Looks at Peter and says, you're gonna go too? Well, in Luke chapter nine, verses 57 to 62, Jesus does something in a similar way. I want you to listen to these words. They were going along the road and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, you know, my tendency would be to respond to something like that with great. That's fantastic. Keep it up. Jesus, of course, knowing a little more than I know. Verse 58 says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. By the way, if you follow me, you won't have a house. You sure you want to come? Pep talk. To another, he said, follow me. So Jesus extends the call, follow me. But he said, that is, the person says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Reasonable request, isn't it? Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Don't get distracted. There are a lot of things going on potentially culturally here, but this still, nevertheless, is count the cost. I will be, Jesus says, I will be first. And I will share supremacy with no one. Verse 61, yet another said, one more person had the audacity to say something. I will follow you, Lord, but there's the problem. Let me first say farewell to those at my home. If there ever was a reasonable request in our minds, isn't this one? Jesus, of course, knows the heart. He knows what's going on here. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I think this is similar to what's happening here in this second bit of instruction, count the cost. Is your heart back in your vineyard? Then go. Is your heart back in your house? Then go. Is your heart focused supremely in your coming marriage? Then go. If your heart is with the Lord and with the Lord's battle, then stay. I think that's what's going on in the text. So the call to follow Christ and enter war against our sin is it's not a bait and switch invitation, you know? It's not what it is. It's not one of those, it's not one of those altar calls that says something like this. Look, do you want to go to hell? If you don't want to go to hell and burn forever, then come down front. Who doesn't come down front? Right? So many extensions of the gospel don't give anyone anything to reject. Jesus, on the other hand, of course, that's a part of it, right? A benefit of the gospel is indeed, yeah, you don't perish in hell. Praise the Lord, you have everlasting bliss. Jesus oftentimes does say, come and die. Am I enough for you to give your life? That's what's happening here. Christ is clear from the beginning of the call to discipleship. And I want you to hear this, church family. I need to hear this every day. 
following him will demand your life, your soul, your all. And yet there is nothing in the universe more worthy of your life, your soul, your all than the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Nothing in the world more treasurable and worthy than Christ. But this is the call. Count the cost. In addition to placing your confidence in the presence and power of God, first instruction, and the second instruction, counting the cost, we find a third instruction for war. And boy, Pastor Brett's going to get me. We've got a few minutes left, maybe. We'll finish this. Third instruction for war. And here it is. Distinguish between different kinds of enemies. Distinguish between different kinds of enemies. This one, you may have to fared out a bit in your community groups or later on in your families. It demands a lot, perhaps just with friends over a cup of coffee. But we're going to walk through this quickly. I think it's extremely important to wrap our minds around a portion of this. Notice verses 10 and 11, there are enemies that become peaceable in relation to Israel. You see that? They eventually surrender and open their gates, inviting Israel into the city to enter an agreement in which Israel reigns over them. So there are some peaceable enemies and they open up their gates. Israel is not to destroy them. There are also those who remain resistant to God and to his people. And we find out in verses 12, 13, and 14 that when this is the case, Israel is to put them to death. That is the males in particular. They are to spare the females and the little children and then livestock and other things. Finally, there are those nations that are inhabitants of Canaan. And they are they are under the concentrated judgment of God. We learned this again back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It appears even in Genesis 15. Notice verses 16 and 17. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. You shall devote them to what? Complete destruction. So there were particular enemies that were under the concentrated and fierce judgment of God. There were other enemies, however, that weren't. They were to be treated differently. Some of them not killed at all if they were peaceable. They were receptive. Others, a portion of them were to be killed And additionally, rather than employing the warfare practices of pagan nations and destroying everything in their wake, Israel was to take care of God's creation, including trees. You see that? This is before the green movement, okay? They could cut down only those trees necessary for laying siege to a city. God tells them, don't cut others down. That's needless. The trees aren't human. Take care of them. Well, we don't have long on this, but I want to do a bit of this. What does this do for us as followers of Jesus Christ? How is it that we're interpreting this kind of distinguishing between kinds of enemies as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, in a similar way, I think Christians are called to distinguish various kinds of spiritual enemies or intellectual enemies or moral and ethical enemies. There is a difference. There is a difference between those things that are overtly, rather, overtly opposed to Jesus Christ, 
in those things that are not overtly opposed to Jesus Christ. There's a difference between those things, those ideas, or those activities that inherently are in opposition to the gospel. And those other ideas or activities that may have portions of them that aren't consonant with the gospel, but have other portions of them that are consonant with the gospel. Over here, we would put things like this, that is, those things that are overtly opposed to Jesus Christ and to the character of God. We'd put something like immorality. The Christian is never to enter into an immoral relationship for the glory of Jesus Christ. Never. So if someone comes to you and comes to me and says, look, I, I, uh, I've got this relationship with this person and, and we're doing such and such and this is, you know, we're, we're in a sexual relationship and we're not married, but you know, I just really feel like God wants me to continue in this relationship. You know what we could say? No, he doesn't. No, this relationship needs to be uprooted from your life. That's an enemy. It's an enemy of yours, it's an enemy of hers, or that's an enemy of yours, it's an enemy of his. You see, because immorality itself is inherently contrary to the character of Christ. But there are other things. I'm going to give you an easy example, maybe. There are other things that are not inherently contrary to the gospel. In fact, they can be used for the glory of Christ, and they could also become more than that and become a problem. I had a friend of mine, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. A friend of mine was an all-state golfer. He was an all-state golfer, tremendous in high school. And he became a Christian. And when he became a Christian, he actually decided for a season to put away golf. And he did that because his life revolved around golf. Everything was golf to him. And he told me, I remember this conversation, I had the privilege of discipling him some. He told me that he didn't think he could actually employ golf for the glory of Christ just yet. It was a big deal. I mean, he's an all-state golfer. And so for a season, he gave it up. Sometime later, you know, I talked to him and I said, so, you know, where are you at with this? And he said, actually, now I do feel like I'm, I'm employing golf for the glory of Christ. And he had begun to play golf. Now he's in full-time ministry, still golfs. I went golfing with him one time. I'll never go golfing with him again. But now, of course, he felt like personally he had come to the point at which this was now a peaceable enemy. You see? At one point in his life, it was in opposition to Christ. But now it had become peaceable. And he was able to employ it in service to Christ and in service to others. Now, there are so many other activities and, and examples we could give, but that helps you understand the Christian life really is about discernment. Justin Martyr, who's a second century Christian, describes ancient philosophers in this way. Ancient Greek philosophers, he says, he says this about them. Whatever things were rightly said are the property of us Christians. He considers that a peaceable enemy. All truth is God's truth. And yet there are some things in those authors that Justin himself rejected and that we must reject. You see, so it's more than this. Those things that are inherently opposed to Christianity are inherently opposed to our spiritual vitality, are inherently opposed to the gospel. Those things are abominable, must be uprooted and rejected. 
When there are other things, however, we have to sift through. Is this something that can be employed for the glory of Christ, for my own spiritual vitality and the spiritual vitality of others? Now, as we wrap up, I want to give you one piece of advice on this. And you can talk more about this. I hope you do. I hope you do. There are some things, as my example demonstrated, there are some things that although they may be consistent with the character of Christ, they should still be avoided at certain times by certain people for certain reasons. Paul says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If there's something in your life that may possibly be an instrument in service to Christ. Theoretically, right? Theoretically, it could be an instrument in service to Christ. There's nothing, that is, there's nothing over here that's intrinsically opposed to the gospel or to spiritual vitality. It's not an immoral relationship. It's not gossip. It's, It's not gluttony. It's not greed. It's not covetousness, right? It falls over here. It may be employed in service to Christ, but... It has become a hindrance to your spiritual vitality. Then let me suggest to you that you consider, at least for a season, uprooting it. At least for a season. Uprooting it for the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Well, You've been patient and gracious. And we've identified three instructions in this manual on warfare from Deuteronomy chapter 20. First, place your confidence in the presence and power of God. Second, count the cost of following Christ. Count the cost of following Jesus Christ. He's worth it all. Third, distinguish between different kinds of enemies so that you are better positioned to serve the Lord your God alone. And in the end, know that this war, this spiritual war, this cosmic war, this intellectual war, this ethical war, is not won in your strength, but by the strength of the one who is with you and fights for you. As the great missionary Hudson Taylor once said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you as weak men and women. Grant us the privilege of reckoning on you to do great things through us. And thank you that our final victory has been secured by means of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. And all God's people said, amen.